couple called me. This is before I became a minister. Uh, a couple called me at the beginning of the week. See, when you're a minister, you can't tell these kinds of things. There's this business about confidentiality. But this is before I was a minister. A couple called me at the beginning of the week. They will, they will remain nameless. And those of you who know who they are, do not tell anyone. <laughs> said, uh, Hugh, uh, we met at your service at the Dispensable Church. And I said, oh, is that right? Said, yes, we did. We've fallen in love and uh, we want to get married. I said, oh, I said, well, that's just great. And they said, well, you're the only person who could marry us because we met and fell in love at the Dispensable Church. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not a minister. Well, Hugh, our, our relationship is kind of platonic until we get married. <laughs> I said, kind of platonic? I, I said, you're not having sex until I marry you? <laughs> There's a silence on the end of <laughs> So I went to the attorney. I said, there's this couple. <laughs> I said, I know this is 1982, but they're not going to get, they're not going to have sex until they, until uh, I marry them. How quickly can you make me a minister? <laughs> he said, they're not having sex? I said, no. So he said, I think if I devote all my time to it, and if you go get the signatures of these people, we can have you a minister by Sunday. <laughs> so I am now the most dispensable Hugh Prater. <laughs> Being Mother's Day, we of course chose the appropriate subject, which is the body. <laughs> and I would like to read you a little section from A Course in Miracles. This is actually contained in the book Choose Once Again, which is passages from A Course in Miracles set in iambic pentameter, because much of the course is actually in iambic pentameter, although it was machine set so that the, the line is not broken at the end of the 10 beats. But in this book, there are passages pulled out and set the way it actually came. This is from page 619 of the text, which is the second volume of the course. Temptation has one lesson it would teach in all its forms, wherever it occurs. It would persuade the Holy Son of God he is a body born in what must die, unable to escape its frailty, and bound by what it orders him to feel. It sets the limits on what he can do. Its power is the only strength he has. His grasp 
cannot exceed its tiny reach. Would you be this if Christ appeared to you in all his glory, asking you but this? Choose once again if you would take your place among the saviors of the world or would remain in hell and hold your brothers there. For he has come and he is asking this. So that is the only temptation according to A Course in Miracles. The thought that we are nothing but a body. We can only reach those that our body can reach. We can only be as happy as circumstances favor our little body. That we only have our friends as long as their bodies live. That our happiness depends on the body and its health. <clears throat> its age and its appearances and its position in the world. And this, of course, is exactly what happens in dreams at night. Possibly you've noticed that the one common denominator of all dreams is that you are always a body in the dream. Everything can change, but... You must remain a body. And why is that? Because there must be something with which to perceive. There has to be a standpoint. If we're going to see everything as separate from us, if there's space and time between us and every other living thing, then there has to be a mechanism with which this can be perceived. There has to be some sort of sensing device that says, I'm here and you're there. It would be impossible to have a dream in which everything is separate from everything else and not see it from a standpoint, not see it from a certain position. And that, of course, is what a body is. It's seeing things only from one position. And everything must relate to this position. And so things seem to either favor us or not favor us. Things seem to either be going our way or time seems to be running out on us. And of course in miracles and Ernest Holmes and Phil Moores and Mary Baker Eddy and Lao Tse and Shankara and anyone you want to read of all the spiritual scriptures down through the ages, all the great religions, remind us over and over that this is indeed a dream. And that the dream at night merely mimics the dream, the daydream. 
the waking dream. And so dreams can be very useful in, in seeing how we limit ourselves because the body is really nothing more than a limit on happiness. The, the body is literally composed of fear. And to lay aside the body or to lose interest in the body is merely to increase our joy and our happiness. The thought of putting aside the body is quite scary to the ego because we think that's all we are. But when we put it aside gently and gradually, we see a gradual and gentle increase in our happiness, in our peace, and in our connectedness with, with others. Gail's and my little boy just turned uh, three in March, and he's begun noticing his dreams. Um, he's, he's at the stage where he doesn't always, can't always tell the difference between the, the dream and the waking state. So there are these... Uh, these melodramas in the middle of the night uh, in which he wakes out of a dream. Uh, the other night he woke up and started screaming, where is my pretzel? <laughs> <laughs> he was looking all over. He's, he's also discovered sleeping bags. So he used to sleep with, with Gail and me, but now he sleeps beside the bed in a sleeping bag. <laughs> And he woke up and he was looking all over and there's just all this commentary on the pretzel and why did we take it and so forth. <laughs> and we told him that it had just been a dream and asked him, did he want a pretzel? He said, no, he didn't want one. Went back to sleep. Now, why didn't he want the pretzel? Because as soon as he realized that it was within a dream, he realized that he didn't want what he wanted in a dream. And that, of course, is what frees us from wants within this world. That's what frees us from running after one thing after another, is that we see this prize evaporate in our hands when we catch it like a dream. It just vanishes, just poof, it's gone. This thing that we thought we had gotten our arms around. And so we don't want that, but still believing that we're in a dream, we begin running after something else. A friend of mine, uh, Gene Smith, had a dream a while back. He was in the house with his wife in the dream, and she suggested that he go out and check on the spoons. So he went out in the patio, and sure enough, the spoons were jumping over the patio wall. So he brought her out, and they, they discussed what should they do about this. Should they uh, build the patio wall higher, or should they uh, hire a spoon trainer? <laughs> And uh, they decided they'd build the patio wall higher, and on and on and on. That's the other characteristic of dreams, is there's no end to it. 
it just goes on and on and on. So you build the patio wall higher, and and now uh, in, in an attempt to get over the patio wall, your your spin your spoons have dreadful falls and and get tarnished and broken or whatever else goes on. But there's no there's no end to it. If you've paid much attention to your dreams, you've noticed that a dream is sort of like setting a needle down on a long play record at random. It just seems to begin somewhere. It doesn't have a formal beginning. You don't go to sleep and then something says, once upon a time. <laughs> it's just, you suddenly you find yourself caught up in something within the dream. Have you noticed this? You can almost, as you go to sleep, as you slip into your first dream, you can sort of see these circumstances surround you and sort of almost cage you. It's almost like a shell of an egg or something, and now you're in this event. And then you go to the next event, and then the next one, and the next one, and, the, and there's no end to it. As Mark Twain complained in his journal, there's no end to it. I mean, here he had accomplished everything he wanted to. He was world famous. And it just kept going on and on and on. And he wasn't dying, and there was just one more event, and now this family member died, and this person got sick, and so forth. And the mistake that we make is that we think that somehow we can fight our way out of this dream. That, that there's maybe there's some way to run out of it. Of course there isn't. We awaken out of the dream the same way we do out of the dream at night, and that is by losing interest in it. So we lose interest in the dream, and then maybe we will go to another dream. And that goes on and on and on. Or another one and another one. Or maybe we'll lose interest in dreams altogether and we wake up. So it's our interest in being awake that awakens us. It's our interest in simple peace and happiness and comfort and ease that diminishes the body's hold on our mind. Because within a dream, we seem severely limited by the body that we have in the dream, although the dream may have a different body than another dream. Uh, this same man told me about a dream in which he was a little retarded child on a ship, and he was the captain's pet. And then they got to the port and uh, went out and the other sailors and so forth uh, started uh, mistreating him and so forth. And the captain came to his rescue and on and on and on and on. But there he was a little retarded child, you see. So that seemed to have certain advantages because the captain took care of him. So always there seems to be this payoff in the situation that we, in a sense, have created in our life. But it will simply transfer to another situation and still another until we begin choosing happiness now. Because the waking state is merely the willingness to have not a care in the world, 
to cease worrying any longer and to be at peace and to relax. When we no longer want the effects of the dream or the gifts of the dream or fear its consequences, Let's take, for example, um, we all seem to get caught up in something. And we seem to get caught up in different things at different times. So obviously some people get caught up in money. Many of us have gotten caught up in money. And, and this becomes a preoccupation. And this transfers to everything. Begin looking at everything in terms of what it costs. Begin looking at people in terms of how much their clothing costs, how much their car costs. We begin looking at, uh, begin taking a great interest in, in catching uh, the waitress to see if she's added up the check properly at the restaurant. So we go over that and we, there's great delight if we find a mistake has been made to point this out. We've talked about how Many, many people get caught up in, in illness and disease. And this is a, a preoccupation. Now, for everything that we get caught up in the dream, the ego, of course, comes along and offers us its opposite. And if you will look at your dreams, if you, when you wake up, you will see this sort of pendulum effect. This is why you go from one vignette to another at night in the dream. No, this didn't work, so we'll go in this direction. This didn't work, so we'll go in this direction, and so forth. So, for example, once people see that it doesn't make them happy to be rich, they sometimes say, ah, poverty is the, is the answer. <laughs> and you can get very caught up. It's a, 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 you can read uh, books of famous artists who are so poor and it seems terribly romantic. You can read uh, about Rembrandt, uh, the creditors coming over and his friends getting the creditors all over together in his living room and so forth. And, and uh, they're going to try to work out something for him. And this has been done, I don't know how many times. And suddenly they look up and where's Rembrandt? He's up in his studio painting. He, he just, it, you know, he walks, oh gosh, that's so romantic. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be poor like that? just care only about your art you see and so we've actually had periods in which people flocked to poor areas of sit of the city you know like Greenwich Village and so forth in order to be poor <laughs> devoted to so that's what the ego offers is this well the the counter dream in the ego terms to to illness is of course health and it's very tempting to, to go from a preoccupation with illness and being sick and, and remedies and all knowing all the reading all the books of the remedies and talking about the symptoms of our illness and uh, and asking how sick someone else was and how long did they have to stay in bed and and discussing this to go to the other thing of building health. You see, now we're going to build it. And we get the trace element of the of the week, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and of course, there's there's no end to that. There's no end to to the health. And 
what you can put into your body to build perfect health. Because the ego really does believe there is some resting place to which you will come. That there is a stopping point. That you can get so sick that you will finally die. And won't that be romantic? <laughs> remember how romantic that was in high school? The thought of dying. Remember all the songs that used to be written about um, Mary Jane, you know, smushed in the car. And <laughs> the whole senior class turns out at the funeral and so forth. Just seemed wonderful, didn't it? <laughs> well, the resting place for health is that someday we can get so healthy that will be this fortress, this rock. And all the bacteria will just screech and run from us, you see. <laughs> don't think that there are people out there who are interested in money that don't know this. And so they come up with something. They come up with these marvelous articles and, and uh, research, you see. Research was, I love this new research that's come out uh, the uh, province of Georgia in Russia, where uh, everyone's supposed to live to be over a hundred. Now, how do we know that? Well, the Russians tell us that. Well, what else do we need? The, are there any records of their? No, but these are very honest people, the Russians tell us. And the Russians, of course, have the oldest people in the world. They wouldn't expect them to claim anything. Well, we, of course, buy this. A few years back, it was the Hunzas that were the oldest people in the world. But now it's, it's the people in Georgia, province of Georgia. Now, so research has been done, the article said, as to why these people are living to be so old. And you know what they found? Is that they all, almost all of them are beekeepers. They're all beekeepers. And you know what else they found? That they make their living doing it, so they sell the best honey to other people, and they eat what no one else will eat. That must be the reason they live so long, the researcher said. <laughs> the, the dregs of the honeycomb and so forth are what they eat. This is now called bee propolis. And you can buy a little jar of this, little capsules for what? Ten, twelve dollars for a little, a little bottle of this. Now, don't you know that there's some very clever person in the bee industry said, "What are we going to do with this junk that we're throwing out?" You see. Now, as we start on these little searches with our bodies, because the body is always central in this. The body is going to be uh, so sick that everyone will love us and treat us with great honor. And, of course, we know people who come through unbelievable tragedies, and they're still walking around, and everybody sort of looks at them, and they tell these things that have happened to this person, and they're treated with, with awe. Now, it's not really clear that this is a comfort to people. This, is this really an inspiration that someone has gone through something we couldn't, you know, 
Not, not really. There's a real question as to whether or not the ego has come up with a true model and a true inspiration. But nevertheless, there seems to be a pot of gold at the end of this quest, whatever it may be. The quest for knowledge, the quest for the perfect mate, the quest for the ideal children, uh, the quest for the perfect uh, house with the perfect view, uh, whatever it may be, whatever we get caught up in. There seems to be a pot of gold. And of course, it's a pot of gold for the body that's on that path. It's not a pot of gold for anyone else. It's a pot of gold for us. If we do these particular things and travel down this path, surely we will be happy one day. But of course we aren't happy. And as we get older, we often get terribly discouraged about all this. And there's sort of a, a permanent depression that enters our lives. Because by now we know nothing is ever going to be finally true. Let's say, for example, in the quest for health. We eventually get to the point where we realize that they out there are never going to agree on anything. Either what's causing the disease or what will cure it. Finally, we recognize that there's no end to this. Nothing will finally be true. There will never be a state in which you will finally be considered rich. Never will happen. There'll never be a time in which you will finally be considered famous. No resting place. And the body, though, thinks that it is, and so it, it goes off on this little path. Now, children, who of course are not ideal models or anything, but often because they haven't gotten caught up in a lot of the things we have, can teach us some very valuable lessons. If you ask a child, you can go up to an adult who's smiling and so forth and rosy-cheeked and so forth, twinkle on their eyes, and you can say, how are you doing? Why are you so happy? And this makes sense to an adult. That's a logical question. Why am I happy? And they will actually give you a reason. They've already attributed it to something. Now you ask a little, you go up to a little kid, two or three years old, they're whistling, they're singing, and so why are you so happy? They will just be dumbfounded. They have they, they couldn't possibly tell you why they're happy. You see, they haven't learned to attribute it to anything. They they somehow seem to know that it's natural to be happy. There's a that there's a well of joy inside of us. And that it just flows out. Now they can tell you why they're not happy. You see. Because they, they do know that something seems to be stopping the well of joy, but they can't tell you why they're happy. My happiness has no cause. Let's say that together. My happiness has no cause. I am never happy for the reason I think. <laughs> Let's say that together. I am never happy for the reason I think. 
Notice this, that the next time that you find yourself happy, your ego will do this. It will ask you, why are you happy? Then you will look for a cause for your happiness and immediately notice that there is a dampening down of your joy. Now, the fact is, we can be happy in any situation. You don't believe that, do you? You've already thought of 12 situations where you can't be happy. Let's, let's say this great untruth that you have such deep disbelief in. I can be happy in any situation. I can be happy in any situation. Now, let me just give you a little experiment. I'm not going to see this. This is not something you're buying here now. We've all got little things we think we have to do for our body. These little things, you see. Now, it was bad enough that we had to brush our teeth, but now we've got to floss. Flossing is a chore and a bore. And we've gone through, should we get the floss with the with the uh, wax on it or the unwaxed or the ribbon? You know, we've gone through all that. and how to, The dentist has shown us movies about how to do this and so forth. And so there, every night, we stand in front of Merrill, flossing. Now, but tonight, as you stand there, remember... I can be happy in any situation. <laughs> I just want you to try this as a little experiment. When you get up in the morning, you've got these seven things you've got to do. Some of you, it's 23. Okay. We can tell by how you look as to how many things you've been doing. <laughs> Notice that some of them still seem to have a purpose, you see. Others, you don't understand how you got trapped in this, but it's a necessity and you do it. So as you prepare your body in the morning to go through the day, and as you prepare it to go to sleep, and you do all the little things you do, you Look at your toenails and see if they're too long. <laughs> Whatever it is you do. Just remember, I can be happy in any situation. Now, you don't have to do anything about that. That's a fact. Just remembering it, I promise you, will make you happy. You don't believe this, I know. But the just try it. Here you are. You're going to try this now and go to bed tonight. You're doing a little... And you get to the one thing there that you don't like, you know, you've got to comb your hair out or something. Before you go, All right, now, you don't like doing that. Hurts or something. Now, <laughs> all right, just say to yourself, I can be happy in any situation. Now, notice as soon as you say that, that you'll relax a little bit. And a teeny little smile will sort of flit through your mind. Because the well of joy is already inside you. That's a fact. All we, all we need to do is not keep the lid on it. 
And to simply say, I can be happy in any situation. I can be happy in a traffic jam. I can be happy when I'm getting a ticket. I can be happy even though I didn't get the refund that I was hoping for. I can be happy even though I'm having to wait in this long line for this at this restaurant, you see, for lunch. I can be happy in any situation. Say that and immediately your mind, your soul, your heart, which are your friends, will immediately begin bringing in a number of different sources of joy, provided you don't ask what's making you happy. Suddenly you'll start getting a little happy, and he goes, Oh, what's making you happy? <laughs> now, if you won't do that, and you'll just let yourself get happier and happier and happier, so you, you, you think you're going to become one of these people that nobody can stand, you know. <laughs> Isn't it a great day? <laughs> or you say, you go up to someone and say, Hi, well, how you doing? Super, super, super. <laughs> Then you want to slug them right in the mouth. <laughs> now you think that's what's going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to Because what I'm talking about real happiness. And real happiness is a comfort to be around. It isn't a happier than thou. It's not a comparative state. <laughs> it's sort of like the. It's sort of like a, a, a gentle overflowing of the tub, you see. <laughs> and this this warm water just just circles around the little feet of the furniture and everything. You see. And that's what real happiness is like. People don't understand, but they kind of get caught up in it, real happiness, and before they know it, they're kind of feeling happy, too, you see, around you, without attributing you as the cause. They're just, you know, we, we've all been around people, and just suddenly, you know, our, our mood is lifted, and we don't understand what it was we were, you know, so worried about a few minutes ago, until we leave them, and then, you know, we quickly will we'll try very hard to remember what it was. <laughs> Now, as we go through the day, there seem to be things that are especially designed to take away our happiness. Things that, are, that go even beyond flossing our teeth. <laughs> things that we say no one could be happy in this situation. And there's some, there's some rules that you can remember in situations like that. Possibly the best rule to remember in Santa Fe is let it pass through you like refried beans. <laughs> so the first thing to do is you just start relax and you see, and you're not going to resist this, it's just going to go right through you. And remember that the way to, to resist it, to get hard, to get like a very brittle tree that will bra uh, break in the wind, is to start 
analyzing the problem and trying to figure out how to solve it. Now, this seems so logical. And growing up, everyone has told us that we must do this. We must analyze the problem. We must take it apart. We must see what's causing it. And then we must figure out what we need to do to solve it. Did you know that that is totally unnecessary? You do not have to analyze, but immediately we'll do this as an instinctive at this point for most of us. How can I figure this out, and how can I solve it? So one of the great truths is you can't solve it. That is one of the great things to see. And like, remember, it's a dream. It just goes on and on. And you can't solve it. As soon as you seem to solve it, that solution will itself cause another problem. <coughs> and our federal government has been demonstrating this to us for as long as we can remember, haven't they? These wonderful programs, and they're set up, and immediately it causes another problem. And so another program, and then it's so forth. Maturity is understanding that nothing in the world can be solved. Nothing will be finally true. Nothing will ever come to rest. Now, once you begin to understand that, you will never again try to solve a problem. What you will do is say, is say how can I have peace now? This is very uh, scary. This is a very, especially when we talk about illness. Uh, many, many people are quite reluctant to try this approach with, say, illness, or with, say, financial problems, or with, say, the behavior of our adolescent who has this suspicious smell, you know, come home. You know. We think we, we've got to somehow bring this to rest. But let me show you how this would be used, let's say, for example, with an illness. You would not ask, how can I cure the disease? You would ask, what can I do to be as happy as possible right now? So instead, you would look at the symptoms, and you'd merely take care of the symptoms. You wouldn't get in this, caught up in this huge battle of trying to cure the disease, which very often means that you will not take care of yourself right now while you're pursuing a cure for the illness. Because your ego believes that you can attain perfect health, or near-perfect health. And so it thinks that there's some sense in trying to cure this disease. There isn't, because another one will simply replace it, and there will be more and more, like a flower garden that starts growing past its borders, older, they, the, the, the illnesses and the maladies and so forth seem to actually multiply. But that doesn't make any difference if the peace of God this instant is our only goal. We'll simply look at whatever it is that's going on and we'll say, what can I do to be at peace this instant? Now, if this is too terrifying to you, you don't have to do it. But you might just look at this with the little illnesses and so forth. Don't try to analyze it. Don't try to cure it. Just ask yourself, what can you do about it now? 
And take that also with with your financial problems or with your problems with your kids or your car or whatever. Instead of trying to solve it in some long-term basis, sit quietly in the peace of God. Remind yourself that the greatest gift you can give is to your own awakening. You can give no greater gift to yourself than to your awakening. If you try to solve a problem in the world, you are not giving to your awakening. You are continuing being caught up in the dream and going from one thing to another to another. You can only awaken now because it is now to which you are awakening. Now is the only reality there is. The only thing that we're learning is that only now exists. And so we are awakening to now. We are learning to trust and then to believe in and finally to know now. So every time we embark on something that has a future payoff, we are not giving to our awakening. And of course we're not giving to the awakening of of our brothers and sisters because there's no peace in this. So you simply sit. God's peace and say, what do I want to do about it? And one of the things that you'll probably notice is that above all else, your ego doesn't want you to do anything about it now. It's got wonderful ideas about what to do about in the future. If we would spend just half of the time that we spend thinking about we ought to take care of so-and-so. You walk through the house, notice how many things you will just think of all of a sudden that you need to take care of. It may have to do with the house, may have to do with your life. I need to take care of this. There's these little reminders, these little patches of soreness as we go through the day, things that need to be taken care of. Notice that the ego loves to dwell on these and spends enormous amounts of time chastising itself. Why haven't we taken care of it? When are we going to do this? What's the perfect way to take care of it? And so forth. Try spending just half the time doing something about it right then and nothing will go undone that will disturb your peace in the present. This is a lesson that probably most of us eventually learned in school. Because in the beginning we kept putting off the hall, I've got to do my homework, I've got to and finally, by the time we got to college, at some point in there, senior year in high school or something, we suddenly realized that the homework wasn't going to get done if we didn't do it now. Of course, that applies to every, every single thing. So if there's something that you, as you go through, there will be these little things that will call out to you. Little things, the leaky roof, the, the stove, the something, you know, the car, the... Uh, the friendship that needs to be here, so-and-so misunderstood me, I need to call her, uh, whatever it is, there's something, there's this bad habit my child's picked up, whatever, these things call out to you, call out to you, call out to you. Ask yourself, what do I want to do about it? And you will either see that you don't want to do anything about it, oftentimes you'll see you don't want to do anything about it, or you will see something very simple to do right now. 
you probably heard the joke about uh, the, uh, on the Unitarians um, that uh, now this is not unity; these are the Unitarians. First, we got to make sure we got to uh, tell jokes against the right people. <laughs> the joke uh, that if a Unitarian was going to heaven, got to a crossroads, to the right it said heaven, and to the left it said a discussion about heaven. <laughs> Unitarian would go to the left, you see. And that's, of course, what the ego always wants us to do. It wants us to discuss it, endlessly agonize over it. Remember, nothing has to be agonized over. Why? Because nothing has to be solved. Why? Because nothing can be solved. Once this is seen, it's such a relief. This world is a mess, and there's nothing you're ever going to do about it. Your life is a com in, in complete shambles, and you're never going to put it together. I can't tell you what a relief this is to understand this. You're never going to ha uh, have peace in your relationships with your friends. There's always going to be something going on. Once you see that, then you don't have to fight that battle. You you stop the slugging match. Just say, well, what would I like to do now? Because now is the only time we can be happy, and the ego does not understand that. The ego comes with this beautiful silver platter, this specially engraved card. You open it up and it says, this is your invitation to future happiness. And that's all it will ever give you. And you will spend all of your days and your weeks thinking that you're going to get somewhere. We never get anywhere in this world. It's just one thing after another. Once that's realized, we can say, ah, oh, I think I'm going to be happy now. Now, if it would make you a little happier now to do something that would appear to have a future consequence, don't, don't refrain from doing it because it will, would appear to have a future consequence. Just know that you're doing it because it makes you happy now. So it doesn't mean that you don't take out an insurance policy on your your new painting or something that you just bought. You're worried about this. You don't know that in Santa Fe they do not they do not steal paintings. All right. But you don't know that, and this is very now. Now, if it makes you happy to do that, do it. Not because it's going to protect the painting or you'll get money for it but because the thought of doing it makes you happy now. Possibly the area that causes people the most unhappiness when they study A Course in Miracles is the interpretation that the ego makes of special relationships. How many people here uh, have looked at at least casually A Course in Miracles? Huh, okay. Remember that Edgar always reads truth along with you and asks, what are you supposed to do about this? How is this supposed to be applied? 
And so in special relationships, Edgar suggests to you that possibly what the Course means is, because to, to Edgar, the meaning is how you will translate this into behavior. But notice there is nothing in the Course in Miracles on behavior. Not one single solitary thing. Why? Because it's meaningless. It means it makes no difference how you behave. It makes a difference as to what you're doing with your heart. And that's all. Is there love? Is there a song in your heart? Is there peace in your heart? So it is how you do whatever you do and not what you do. It makes no difference what you do. It's just how you do it. You do it with peace and, and joy. But Edgar doesn't understand that because Edgar does not understand happiness. And so Edgar is simply asking, well, what is it? How am I supposed to act? And you know, we just, well, so the thing on special relationships, it, Edgar begins to question, well, does this mean maybe I'm not supposed to date? Uh, maybe uh, I'm not supposed to fall in love. That's a favorite one, of course, in miracle students when they read these passages. You're not supposed to, somehow, this is a special relationship. You fall in love. Uh, maybe I'm not supposed to be real enthusiastic about certain friends. Maybe I'm not supposed to love my child more than I love other children. This is a favorite one. I'm not supposed to love this friend more than... Who cannot love a, one friend more than another? Who among us cannot love their own child more than other people's children? All the ego is trying to do is to set up a battle that you will lose. And it's irrelevant. Why? What's the song, uh, if you can't love... You know, no, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Okay. <laughs> so a holy relationship simply means that you love the one you're with that's all it means you're with your child but your child is the one you spend all of your time with how ridiculous to think that you're somehow supposed to love everybody else's child as much you love the one you're with which simply means that you, you let your heart talk to the heart of that child the ego brings up these questions so that there will be comparisons. So when the ego looks at the passages on special relationships, immediately notice that your mind will begin comparing. How much do I love this person? Compare. Why am I so enthusiastic about this new friend? This is not right. Once again, this is, why is my body happy? Shouldn't be happy. I shouldn't be so enthusiastic about this new friend. This is a special. Remember, immediately, two things, a battle that you will lose, and secondly, a comparison. What does any of that have to do with truth? What does any of that have to do with the presence of God and entering the kingdom of heaven? Did you read about how, where our favorite yogurt... Uh, Someone was eating our favorite yogurt and crunched on a, uh, what was it? A beetle? What? 
Oh, and their hair fell out. I didn't know that. <laughs> they ate the beetle and their hair fell out. And uh, we won't we won't name the uh, we won't name the yogurt. But I was so happy that it wasn't the yogurt that puts all the sugar in. <laughs> That's the one I eat. <laughs> the health food stores won't touch that yogurt. <laughs> the one with all the sugar in it. I have to go to places like. Safeway, stuff like that. Get that. Now, what if that person had been guided to pick that yogurt? Have you ever done that? Have you gone to the health food store and looked at all the yogurts? Oh, my Lord, all the yogurts? You turn to God and say, which yogurt shall I say? It was a woman, wasn't it? And the, and the dear woman in the voice said, pick that one. And she ends up with a beetle in her mouth. Oh, and maybe $100,000 right now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Right, it was guidance. That's <laughs> now, I've touched on this subject a number of times, and the reason I've done so is because this causes people on a spiritual path so much unnecessary misery. This business of guidance. Now, of course there's guidance. And of course we have this... Uh, this lovely, peaceful presence, or maybe a voice that directs us to do something in life. There's no doubt about that that occurs. But when we take the minutiae of our life, and we try to go to God about what yogurt to buy and all this stuff, what we are really doing is we are activating Edgar. We are not turning to the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit care what yogurt you bought? What does this have to do with awakening in God. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. But what happens is if we think that the Holy Spirit or, or that Jesus told us to take this particular job or to buy this particular chair or whatever it is, then look what happens. Now there is a, there's a, a great deal of confusion if you realize you've made a mistake in some way. Because what does it mean? It means either that the Holy Spirit or Jesus or God or your inner self or your inner guide or your spiritual God or whatever words you use, either that was inaccurate. Now let's just look at that. Is it likely that the Holy Spirit misunderstood your question? <laughs> Isn't it much more likely that the Holy Spirit just refrained from from answering it, knowing that this is not what your purpose is? Or the other thing is that somehow you did it wrong. So you did something something you did wrong. You see, because this is obviously a mistake. Now you're having to take the typewriter with a halo back. You see, it's not working properly. <laughs> and so this is why people get themselves locked into relationships in which they thought they were 
told to marry so-and-so, or, or they were told to move to such-and-such such a city, and now it's not working out. And so instead of just correcting the mistake, then they agonize over this. Well, maybe there must be a reason. There must be a reason why I was told to eat this beetle. <laughs> and eventually, you can come up with a reason, like the $100,000 you'll get. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with truth. This is, this is all self-deception. If we simply, as uh, Carol Stahl, and I know she will love me forever for quoting her, says, just follow your pee-pee. <laughs> your peaceful preference. Just follow your peaceful preference. <laughs> dissolving the body, dissolving the body's limitations, letting loose of unhappiness is simply a matter of being happy now doing what you want to. It doesn't matter what you do, so do what you want to do. And this is awakening. This is entering the presence of God. 